Hey, uh, if you've been with us for uh, any length of time, you know that this summer we're in a series on Romans. It's called Paul's Gospel. Paul himself uh, describes what, he, what he's doing in, in the book of Romans as my gospel, like his gospel, his telling of the good news about Jesus. And one of the things that we've seen over and over and over and over again is that Paul is like the, the revelation from God that, that the Messiah, the Savior of Israel, is going to be somebody who dies and is raised from the dead and then goes up to be with the Father and sends the Spirit to make the church. That is like, that's mind-boggling. Nobody saw this one coming, Paul least of all. And because this is what God's plan is, Paul's in the process of rethinking everything he knows about life and God and salvation and faith and everything. And so when he's doing it, he's like, it's like it's, for, for the, the first hearers of this, I've been like, whoa, this is crazy stuff. One of the things uh, that, that, that Christians and atheists and everybody has an issue with is uh, the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament. Now, for Paul, the Old Testament wasn't the Old Testament. It was just the Bible. There was nothing else. So for Paul, it was, you know, if he thought about the scriptures, that was what we think of as the Old Testament. But for those of us who are familiar with the Old Testament, we might be inclined to be like, I just kind of want to ignore that part of the Bible because it's so wacky. In fact, the new atheists, people like uh, Christopher Hitchens, uh, Richard Dawkins, one of the things they love to do is they love to like quote or tell stories from the Old Testament that make God out to be like this crazy monster or this evil like genocidal nut job. And they're like, this is, this is who the... the and they, they do this because they know that the Christians, the Jews, and to some extent Muslims all sort of you know, take the Old Testament seriously. And they're like, look, you can't believe in God. God's awful. And what's interesting to, uh, to, so that's like one aspect, that's like the, what kind of contemporary atheists and non-believers, um, seekers are confused about. In, in Paul's day, there was also the issue that, that you would think that for a whole, for people who were steeped in the Old Testament, the Jews of the first century were very, very familiar with everything that was in the scriptures. How is it that they didn't end up saying, for the most part, oh Jesus, he's our Messiah? Isn't that kind of weird? Like these people, they've been living their lives according to the, the scriptures, the, the first testament, some scholars call it, the Hebrew scriptures, the Bible. And then when Jesus shows up, they miss him for the most part. Even Paul missed Jesus the first time around. Jesus actually had to like have a special encounter with him being like, hey, buddy, what is, what, what's the problem with the Old Testament? Why is it that the Old Testament is A, wacky, and B, why is it that people who you know, supposedly read it don't see Jesus as the Messiah that the Old Testament is testifying about. Well, uh, that's kind of the subject in, in, in large part of Romans 9 to 11. We're just going to take a little sliver of it, and I don't want you to worry too much about the question of you know, what to do with Israel and the Jews and all that. I want you to, what we're going to do is we're going to look at how to read the Old Testament better. We're going to see the way Paul reads the Old Testament, and I think it's going to be really fascinating because it's totally based on his recognition that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus came, he died, he was raised again, and this changes the way we read Israel's Bible. So on the back of uh, your note sheets, I have um, the, uh, the NRSV version of this. Uh, it's a little bit easier to, to understand the New King James, but it's very, very close uh, to, to the Greek. So I've elected that one this week. But it goes like this. Paul says, But not all have obeyed the good news. For Isaiah says, he's quoting the Old Testament here, Lord, who has believed our message? So faith comes from what is heard, and what is heard comes through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they, the Jews, Israel, not heard? Well, yes, they have. 
For their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. He's again quoting uh, the Psalms there. We'll talk about that. Again, I ask, did Israel not understand? Well, they should have. Moses says in Deuteronomy 32, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah, in Isaiah 65, is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who do not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, Isaiah 65, verse 2, All day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Uh, if you're following, uh, I, normally I would have this, this highlight on the screen, but we're, we're going to be looking at, at the quotes that Paul's addressing. He's going through the Old Testament, and, and if you're not familiar with these quotes, that's okay, because I am. And so I'll kind of guide you through them a little bit to show you exactly what Paul's doing with the Old Testament. So the very first one, if you notice there um, in, in, in verse uh, 16, Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? This is from Isaiah 53. It's uh, one of the, um, the premier passages in the Old Testament that Christians use to talk about Jesus. It's the, the, the passage of the suffering servant. And in Isaiah, the prophet talks about how there's going to be a, a guy who's going to get beat up He's going to get scarred and smashed, and through his pain, through his wounds, redemption, salvation is going to come. You may be surprised to find out that traditionally our Jewish friends have understood that to be Israel, to be the Israel's the suffering servant. How does this work? Well, who here has actually completed start to finish with more than two players? A game of Monopoly. Anybody actually done it? I mean, talk about a way to, to make enemies. Monopoly, I, I, I think, is it Parker Brothers? Whoever makes Hasbro? I don't know, somebody. Parker Brothers. When, whoever invented Monopoly, I, I think, was a closet socialist and was trying to convince the people who play that capitalism is evil. And, and the reason is, if you play Monopoly, what, what happens is it's very clear early on who's going to win, right? After, like, one, once, maybe twice around the board, there's one person who's got more stuff than everybody else. And from there, it's just attrition. It's just a slow squeezing of blood from a stone. And, and, and all the other players are sitting there just hoping, Frank, please land on luxury tax. I, I just, oh, gosh, anything. Please. You know, it's just, just, but they're just getting bled out over and over and over. And finally, and most Monopoly games end with the youngest and least patient person throwing over the board and running out being like, I hate this game and I hate you. <laughs> it's true. Uh, well, something very similar actually happened to the nation of Israel. Uh, the nation of Israel was, uh, was, was taken from their home in 586 B.C. Uh, Jerusalem, their capital, was sacked, burned to the ground. And the Jews were, were taken off into captivity into Babylon. And there, there was a slow death over 70 years of everybody who had been a, a, a person in Israel. They, they all just watched as um, their, their land was destroyed and then they themselves died in captivity. And all the time, the Babylonians were looking at them and laughing and being like, ha, 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 our God's better than your God, Marduk's stronger than Yahweh. And then uh, the, the Jewish people were, were desperate. They're, they're hoping, because they knew the prophet's words, they were hoping that if they stayed true to their traditions, then maybe a generation that they would never meet 
would be able to go back to Israel and repopulate and restart God's plan. That's exactly what happened. After a long, you know, 70-year period of death and destruction and failure, uh, the, the old generation passed away and they never got to see it. Uh, but their grandchildren, uh, sort of the, the Babylonians had kind of given them some favor and so sent them back to their ancestral lands. By the way, this is the very first and only time in history that a, um, a small nation or people uh, has survived being taken off into exile. Um, it, that's why if you go to Palestine right now and you're looking for Canaanites, you won't find them. Nor will you find Jebusites or Philistines. Or, they're, they're all gone. The only community that survived being taken away from its home and then eventually coming back is the Jews. And this was something Isaiah said was going to happen. And most Jews of Paul's day thought that that's what the suffering servant was about. It was this older generation of Jews who had to suffer and be taken away from home. And if they stayed faithful, then eventually their grandchildren would get to come back. There would be a resurrection of Israel. And Paul's like, wait, so you're telling me that Someone's got to die. And then that death is going to lead to a resurrection, a new life? Gosh, that sounds a lot like Jesus. And so then Paul's reading uh, 53, uh, Isaiah 53, and, and, and he's, saying, he's saying, whoa, 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 whoa. It's not just that, that Israel was going to do this in exile. God was preparing, setting the stage for a, a, a true once-in-a-lifetime, once once-in-history in in, in Messiah who was going to do that and was going to save everybody. And what Paul realized, if you start reading that way and you start thinking that way, then everything in the Bible, the Old Testament, and everything around you starts to make more sense. This is the first thing in your note sheets. After Jesus' death and resurrection, it is easier to see God's pattern of restoration in the Old Testament and the world. If you are looking for God to do something, you should not be surprised if you see suffering, failure, possibly death, and crushed and smashed, leading to new life and new hope. If you're wondering, why is this happening? Isn't God supposed to be good? Notice that God has always saved this way. It didn't start with Jesus. Jesus was the ultimate manifestation of it. But God has always been in the business of sending people through this type of experience. That, that, that a death leads to life and restoration. And now Paul can see it all over the Old Testament. He sees it in the exile of Israel. He'll see it, I mean, you can see it everywhere in, in Jonah, you know, going down the whale and coming up. You can see all over the place this, this, this pattern of, of going down into the depths, coming out into new life. So look at the next, uh, next quote Paul has. This is from Psalm 19. Uh, in verse 18, Paul says, But I asked, Have they not heard? They, Israel. Well, indeed they have, for, this is Psalm 19.4, if you want to look it up. Their voice has gone out on all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. That there, right there, the, the, the T-H-E-I-R um, from Psalm 19.4, it's referring, of all things, to, uh, to the sun and the moon. It's weird. 
If you look up Psalm 19, uh, and you can just pull it in your, in your few Bibles, if you look it up, you'll, you'll see that the, very f- the first four verses of Psalm 19 are all about how if you look at nature, you see God's majesty. Now, I'm not uh, much of a scientist, but I did uh, look up some pictures on Google Images about why it is that we have a day and night cycle. Apparently, and I mean, obviously this isn't true because the earth is flat, but if the scientists were right, then what, what's, what happens is the earth apparently is like spinning in space, okay? And it's spinning around the sun, which is silly because, I mean, I can look outside and know that the sun actually goes up and down, but that's what the scientists say, and they say, so the earth is spinning, and so when, when I'm, on, I'm on the surface of the earth, when I'm like right here and the sun's right here, ooh, it's daytime. And then when I turn this way, oh, the sun's going down. It looks to me like the sun's going down, and I'm getting away from the day. And now I'm at nighttime. It's like midnight is right here. Right? And then, oh, here we go. Now we're at sort of dawn, you know, and then, oh, here it is noon, and then sunset, et cetera, et cetera. It keeps going and going, right? That's how, that's how uh, days and nights happen. And, and in Psalm 19, 1 to 4, uh, the psalmist, David, says, hey, isn't this crazy? Like, look at, look at God's glory and majesty. Uh, the sun, day to day, night to night, the sun and the moon, they declare God's glory with, with, with words, but they don't have words. They're silent, and yet their word goes out. And that's the quote that Paul's using there. The, 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 even though the sun and the moon can't speak, they're still testifying. Their words are coming to us about who God is and what God is like. Another insane fact about science. Apparently we have seasons because the earth is going around the sun, but it's tilted. And so if you've got the sun here, like right now it's, it's hitting this North America, and, it's, and North America is getting lots of, lots of sunlight. But um, when you get over to here, all right, North America is like, like kind of slanted, and so now the s- southern part of the Earth is getting more sunlight. And so uh, summer happens uh, for south, the, the, south, the southern part of the globe at the opposite time that summer happens for us on the northern part of the globe. And also, uh, I've heard that if you flush the toilet in Australia, it goes backwards. <laughs> I don't think it has to do with the tilt of the Earth, but it might. It's about the extent of my understanding of things. But well, what ancient people noticed is that um, because they lived uh, well north and well south of the equator, they noticed that there's these things, seasons, right? And so during one part of the year, it's, it's kind of autumn, and you, you gather in your harvest, and you've got to save it up and be careful because you're heading into winter. Winter is a really bad time of the year. It's very cold. Things aren't growing. It's kind of dangerous. But then, hey, spring's coming along. Oh, spring, oh, neat. There's, there's hope again. New life is starting to sprout up out of the ground. And, and then, bam, we hit summer. The, the crops are flourishing. Life is happening. And, oh, my gosh, we harvest the crops, and now they're starting to die again. They notice that every night ends in day. They notice that every autumn ends in winter. Every winter ends in spring. Every spring in summer. And that word, that testimony is going out and everyone can hear it. And Paul's saying, oh, they've heard the gospel. They, they know that death leads to life. Everyone does. Why would we think that God's Messiah would be any different? Doesn't it make sense that the Messiah too must go through death to come out into brand new life and to bring us with him. 
And then these uh, last few quotes are great. Verse 19, again, I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses, this is uh, Deuteronomy 32, 21, says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. It's a cool play on words there. Um, in previous in that verse, uh, Moses has said, uh, or God through Moses has said, um, I, if you keep going after idols and, and, and no gods, like fake gods, hevel gods, it's the same word that gets you, you translated as vanity or vapor, um, the fake nothingness gods. Well, then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make you jealous of a fake nothing people, a joke people, hevelim. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say in Isaiah 65, 1 to 2, I have been found by those who do not seek me. I have shown myself to those who do not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. What was the uh, best part of going to the doctor in the 90s? Anyone in their mid to late 30s know the answer to this question? A lollipop. No. The ones they give you are like they're sugar-free, they're garbage. Like, no one wants those. No, it's the Highlights Magazine. You guys remember Highlights Magazine? Highlights Magazine, 1946, it uh, came out for the very first time. Uh, the best part of Highlights Magazine, from my perspective, was the, uh, it's the, the thing where there's like a picture... And then there's another picture, and you have to figure out what changed. It's like the same picture, but, you know, you got to look for, like, what the little differences are. My mother, however, uh, preferred that I pay more attention to her favorite part of Highlights Magazine, and that was Goofus and Gallant. You guys know Goofus and Gallant? Oh, man, if you don't, it's awesome. Uh, It is the single longest. Apparently, there's still a Highlights Magazine. Here in the age of the Internet, some, some crazy person still prints that out. For no one to read. But anyway, uh, they still got this, and Goofus and Gallant are still in there. Interestingly, now Goofus and Gallant are the same person. Let me explain Goofus and Gallant, right, if you don't know. Goofus and Gallant, it came out in the 1940s. Uh, it was brought into Highlights Magazine, but it was a way to teach kids what, you know, how to be good and how to be, be bad. Like, don't be bad, be good. And there's two brothers. I think they're twins or something like that. One's named Goofus, and Goofus is a jerk. Everything Goofus does is awful. Like, so, for example, there will be one picture, and it's Goofus, and he's sneaking into the chair, right, while his grandmother is, like, teetering, right? And it says, Goofus takes the chair from his grandmother. <sighs> and you can see the grandmother, like, disappointed. She's like, why did I even have children? I hate this. And then in the next, in the next panel is, uh, is Gallant, and he's got better posture. His hair is done nicely. He's wearing a collared shirt. And he's like, here you are, Grandpa. And his grandfather's, like, sitting in the chair. He's like, Gallant always saves a chair for his grandfather. You can see the grandfather looking at it. He's like, ah, oh, the fruit of my loins. Yes, I did it. Uh, social scientists actually have done a number of studies on Goofs and Gallant. It's a very effective way to um, change behavior uh, in children because it, makes, it creates a very stark world. There's a world of evil, that's Goofus, he's a bad guy, and there's a world of good, Gallant. You know, and, and, and by looking at the pictures, the kids see that the evil guy, he just, no one wants to be like that. No one wants to hang out with him. And they look at Gallant, like, oh, he's successful, and, and he's winning, and he's a good, I need to be like that. And they actually have measurable performance behavior change of kids exposed to Goofus and Gallant. I bring that up because my kids watch Disney Junior, and in Disney Junior, there are no bad guys. In fact, 
pretty much all the time with Disney nowadays. It's like the bad guy is really just sort of misunderstood. And if someone would sit down and talk with him or her and find out what went wrong, like things would be different. Um, but it turns out that's not a great way to instill sort of moral, like, good and bad kids because kids don't have those types of nuances, right? They, they need to see something very stark. Well, the goofus and gallant of the ancient world, gallant was supposed to be Israel. Israel was supposed to be the nice guy, and, and Israel had gotten God's uh, teaching and, and, God's, and God's instructions, and Israel was supposed to live that out. And, and the reason for that was not so that God would be happy with Israel, although there was that. It was so that other people, other nations, foolish nations, gal- all the goofuses out there, would look at Gallant and be like, that guy's got it figured out. I want to be like him. And the idea would be is like they would see Israel, they would see Gallant, and they'd be like, wow, Gallant's got it figured out. Gallant's God must be awesome. I want to worship Gallant's God. And I want to dump all of my goofus gods. In Deuteronomy 32, uh, God through Moses promises Israel, he says, look, if you don't do this right, guess what? I'm not just going to condemn those jerks, those goofuses. If you act like a goofus too, and you go after things that I don't want you to, and you're a bad example and people don't come to me, guess what? I'm going to go straight to them. I'm going to reveal myself to them. I'm going to use them. I'm going to bring them in anyway. And you're going to be jealous. Why is that? It's because from God's perspective, God's not interested in that anyone should perish or be condemned or damned. That's not what God's up to. God's up to trying to save everybody, bring everyone in, bring everybody to God. That's God's modus operandi. That's God's desire. That's God's heart. And if Israel's not doing their part, God's not going to quit on the Babylonians and the Egyptians and the whoever's and the Jebusites and whatnot. He's not going to stop going after people just because Israel can't do their job. That's not a loving God. It's not a gracious God. It's not a good God. Instead, what God's going to do is he's going to, I'm going to gather you anyway. And while I'm doing it, my people are going to look at you and they're going to be like, I'm mad. I will make you, uh, Israel, I will make you jealous with those who are not a nation, with a foolish nation. I will make you angry. Isaiah says, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. So in, in Babylon, right, the Babylonians at first, they're like, ha-ha, our God's better, your God's terrible, Marduk wins, Yahweh's tar- terrible. After 70 years, when they see how the Jews continue to pass on their traditions and how they continue to hold fast to their gods despite the, you know, the, the challenge and the difficulties, the Babylonians actually, a lot of them start to wonder if maybe Yahweh's not so bad after all. And this is one of the reasons why the Babylonian rulers are willing to have the Jews go back to their land. They, like, maybe your God's not so bad. Maybe we can make a deal with your God. Maybe, maybe we like your God now. And Paul's like, isn't that weird? How all throughout our history, God has said, like, hey, if you don't do your job and you don't recognize me, I'm going to go find people who aren't even looking for me. I'm going to gather them in. And isn't it weird how, like, right now, most of Israel is saying, we don't believe in Jesus, but there's all these dirty, ugly, awful, you know, Roman, Gentile awful human being, but they're all just jumping in and, and excited about God's new plan going, uh, going forward. Isn't it weird how exactly the same thing is happening again? 
Do you think that maybe, maybe God's always operated like this? Maybe God has always been interested in finding the outsider and chasing them down and dragging them in, no matter how bad God's own people are. And maybe that's the same thing right now. Maybe it's the case that right now in 2019, you know, here we are, Coast Bible Church, small but mighty. But what if we're the kinds of people who are like, ah, I'm going to goofus this one up, God, I'm not really interested. Do you think that God's going to be like, well, if Coast isn't going to do my work, well, that's it, it's over. No, what God's going to do is he's going to go find other ways to go and get his stuff done. He's going to find other people, he's going to gather them in, and the whole time we're going to be sitting there being like, wow, we're super missing out on what God has for us. It's the next thing in your note sheets. After Jesus' death and resurrection, it is easier to see God's love for outsiders. Did we do number two? Nature. Number two is nature. That's why I need that confidence monitor. (laughs) Come back! Yeah, yeah. So like the rhythms of death and life in nature, um, it becomes easier to see that um, when you see Jesus' death and resurrection. And also it becomes easier to see that God's interested in gathering in outsiders regardless of what his people are doing. We've got a couple of people here who like history, history books. My dad was a history teacher. Um, I like history, but the thing is, uh, most of my reading uh, for, for work, for this, it involves reading history. And so when I'm reading for fun, I want to read, like, science fiction and fantasy. I want to read about dragons and fairies, dwarves, uh, you know, colonizing Mars, stuff like that, cool stuff. But occasionally, occasionally, I'll read a history book. And uh, my all-time favorite history book was recommended to me by my dad. I think I read it in high school. I think it was on like a, I think it was one of those like Forest Home type trips. We didn't go to Forest Home back then. It was like one of those camp things. I hated camp because I wasn't good at sports and I don't like the sun. So during uh, lunchtime, I would just stay in my bunk and read uh, this book. And this book I read was called The Guns of August by Barbara Tuckman. 1963 Pulitzer Prize winner in history. Barbara Tuckman writes about the very first uh, months of World War I. The, the book begins, if you're not familiar with World War I, it begins with uh, the coronation of some, I don't know, they, this was back when like, Europe had uh, royalty. And someone got crowned or whatever, this is in 1914, 1913, something like that. And, uh, and, and she just sets this, the scene, describes what it was like. You know, it's still like almost medieval, the way that all these people pretend like we're not in the modern era. Then she narrates the the assassination of Archduke Ferdinand, and then she gets into, for the majority of the book, chapters 10 to 22, uh, the very very first uh, combat in World War I. Uh, She ends uh, with the the first Battle of the Marne. If you're familiar with the Battle of the Marne, it was uh, just about a week long. It was in early September, September 6th to 12th, 1914. In the Battle of the Marne, two million soldiers were engaged, uh, British, French, and German, I think, maybe some others. Of that two million, fully one quarter, 500,000, were killed or wounded in a six-day period. And, and, and this is sort of the culmination of the book. And by the time we get to this story of the absolute horrific human disaster that is the Battle of the Marne, nobody's surprised. Or we're not as readers. 
Interestingly enough, uh, in World War I, the, both the Germans, or the Germans, the French, the British, all of Europe thought that the war would last for maybe a few months um, and that there would be a very minimal loss of life. Uh, the conventional wisdom was that uh, there was, well, there's too many, too many connections between European nations, too many economic uh, connections. Like, so trade would, would, would uh, founder if there was too much war, and so war couldn't go on very long, right? Moreover, um, it was believed that the, the key to, to victory in combat was elan, or morale. And as long as your soldiers were mighty and courageous, they could not be defeated, And then the 19th century met machine guns and mustard gas. And then they found out that it doesn't matter how courageous you are, you're still not really likely to run across a field 100 yards while someone's going to you and all your friends. And then they found out that it doesn't matter how badly something might affect your economy if pride is in the way. And then they found out that it doesn't matter how much decorum, how genteel your leaders are, because even the most genteel person is reduced to a quivering mass of flesh when exposed to chemical weapons. All of Europe, in fact, the entire world, was shocked, uh, horrified by World War I. They called it the, end, the war to end all wars. They, they said, this will never happen again. <laughs> uh, people, wow. Because it was such a, um, such a, a disastrous uh, impact on, on the European nations. There's many studies done on this. What's so weird about it is that when Barbara Tuckman's writing in 1963, no person was surprised at what happened in World War I. Everybody knew, well, hey, man, you introduced chemical weapons and machine guns. Game changer, right? Everybody knew that in 1963. Nobody knew that in 1914. And Tuckman and we have the benefit of hindsight. We can look back, and knowing now what we've seen, we can start to piece together how things came about, how things happened. We can start to see threads um, running through history that we were ignoring before. We can start to see that, that the way that things shaped, uh, were, were, was actually really predictable if you were paying attention to the right stuff. And Paul thinks the same thing about what we call the Old Testament. He thinks the same thing about nature. He thinks the same thing about our world. When you start to recognize that the way God operates is through the death and resurrection of the Messiah, you can look back and everything that used to be shrouded in mystery makes perfect sense. Of course God is a self-giving, gracious God all the time. Of course God is going to take on into himself the pain and sin and death that we deserve. Of course God is going to do That's how God's always been. We can only see it when we recognize that Jesus is the crucified and risen Messiah. I bring this up because um, here in the United States of America, especially now in the 21st century, especially amongst uh, educated elites, of which many of us here are, we kind of think we've got things figured out. 
We kind of think, you know, hey, America, we can make cars and planes. We can land on the moon. We can end the world in the Holocaust. Press one red button. We've got it all figured out. Everything is under our control. And everyone who's come before us, fools. Now we know. Now we've got it figured out. I think what Paul's message to us right now is he's like, look, you're standing in a, in a, in a beautiful and amazing place in history. And, and yeah, when you look back, you can see things the way they, they, they were. But man, that's because you've got 20-20 hindsight. And, and just as the people in the past, um, you know, the Jews who did not recognize Jesus, just as they didn't recognize Jesus, what are you not recognizing right now? Where is your arrogance? Where is it that you are blinded to what's actually happening in the world? And, and how is it that the reflecting and spending time acknowledging Jesus as the, re- the crucified and resurrected Messiah might open those things up to you? What are you missing because you're not seeing the rhythms of death and life in the world? What are you missing because you can't imagine that God might act in this way rather than that way? What are you not seeing because you expect God to move in this mighty way and bash all your enemies instead of maybe being kind and gracious and generous to them? In a hundred years, when they look back at Coast Bible Church, what are the things they're going to be like, those morons? And maybe if we as a community can sit together and and, and spend time reflecting on these things and, and try to pierce behind the veil and see what God has for us and see where God's moving and what God's up to, maybe if we do that together, then maybe we can avoid that. Maybe we can actually be a part of what God has instead of missing the train, missing the boat. Maybe we don't have to wait for hindsight to be 2020. Maybe we can perceive where God's calling us and moving us right now. And if so, what bright new future might we be a part of? Let's pray. Gracious God, we, um, we just ask for your humility right now, Lord, to see that we, that our eyes um, may not be as, as open as we think they are. That just like um, the Jews of, of Paul's day, that we, we might be missing the way that you're moving, the, the way that you're being gracious and self-giving and loving and sacrificial. We might be expecting a different type of movement from you when, when really you have different plans for us. God, I pray that we'll be soaked as people, seeing the world constantly through death and resurrection and glory, that that will be the lens through which we see the past and the present and the future, that we'll read your word that way, we'll read our lives that way, and we'll seek and, and look for your movement in that way. We might chase your spirit well and be led into the glorious future you have for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.